this uh, chapel was the first chapel that I ever attended at Tyndale last year. Um, I was still not here, but I, I was here for a day. And so I came to chapel and they were commissioning. And it was, it was an interesting time for me because many of you will know that for the last 10 years before I took this I, job, I, I spent 10 years uh, directing a, a life-changing experience in my own life of global ministry in, in relief and development and mission. And I was just about to go, what the joke was in my office at CBM at that time was I was going on a farewell tour uh, to Kenya where my heart, uh, I'll explain later, I'm going to start crying, where my heart was uh, to people who I loved very much. And uh, I was going on a farewell tour and you were sending a team uh, from Tyndale to Kenya, I think, at that time to work with Somalis and some of the people that I was going to see were some of the people that did that. So this is a particularly meaningful time, so thank you for the invitation to speak. Um, I made a phone call to Dell Helpline. Have you done that? Uh, I got this person on the other line who was trying to convince me he was from Canada. <laughs> His name was Frank. Uh, but I know that the helpline for Dell is actually in Hyderabad, India, and I know the person who runs the office. His name is Rajesh. And so I asked him uh, how the snow was where he was. And he said, well, it's, uh, it's stopped for now. I said, I bet you you don't get much snow in Hyderabad. And he went quiet. <laughs> and I said, how is Rajesh? And I did his last name too. And the guy went quiet. Uh, he stammered for a bit. But you know, that's our world, eh? Thomas Friedman calls it a flat world. Uh, that in fact the world has kind of shrunk for us and things that happen in other places impact us in ways that maybe never did before. And, and when we think we're phoning Montreal, we're actually getting Hyderabad. Uh, and if it isn't Hyderabad, it's somewhere else. And, and I know that Rajesh trains them to sound, they actually take Canadian history classes. So that if you ask them a question on CFL football, they'll be able to answer those kinds of questions. We live in this really flat world now that is getting flatter and flatter, but at the same time, it's getting really spiky. A chicken gets flu in Thailand, and it impacts the entire world's economy. Or a cow goes mad <laughs> in Alberta which for some of us from Alberta, that doesn't take much imagination. A cow goes mad in Alberta, and that impacts the whole beef industry. And my son-in-law can't get a visa to go down and work on the drills in Brazil because Bombardier is getting government funding from Ottawa, and the people who build planes in Brazil are mad, and so the Brazilian government is freezing his visa or bankers pursue unrealistic financial returns on their investments in England and other places. Numbers of countries are doing that and their banking system begins to collapse and it threatens the whole world with economic collapse. And earthquakes in Japan and New Zealand 
and floods in Australia and in China compete with political unrest. Who remembers Libya when Japan was happening, but now Libya's back on the map again? And it touches people here at home in Canada because all our oil prices go up. And Twitter and Facebook enable communication to play, take place in ways that we never could have imagined. You may have been around for a while, but you may not have been around that long to realize that seismic shifts have taken place, not just in our churches, but in our world. People talk about a shrinking world, and they use words like globalization and immigration. But words are not enough. Because it's how these words are experienced that shake our lives and interrupt who we are and our nice plans. To acknowledge in the 21st century our interconnectedness, to not acknowledge that is to commit global suicide for businesses, for instance. The chair of our board, Steve. Steve has a factory in China. He has offices in Christchurch, New Zealand. He has offices in Australia. And he talked to me last week about the impact that the floods were having in China and how many people that were working in his factory were impacted by that, how that's impacting his business. And then, the, then all of a sudden the earthquake came. And then the tsunami in Japan. And he talked about how his plant in Taiwan, where most of those people were affected by what had happened to them in Japan and how it impacted his business. I would also suggest to not acknowledge our interconnectedness is not only to commit suicide for business, but it also has kingdom of God implications for followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would argue that to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ today, you must be a global disciple. It's not an option. But that means such different things than it did when Tyndale began. In those days, Hudson Taylor had come and he talked about a faraway place called China, which seems quite humorous in the context of Tyndale, doesn't it? This faraway place called China. And he was there to recruit missionaries to come to this foreign land. And our job was to train them, and then our job was to pray for them and support them. And we lived vicariously through them. You know, because they were doing something we wouldn't do ourselves. Our role was to support and pray. But now, in the 21st century, that kind of mission, while it still exists, has changed dramatically. Mission is next door. With the thousands and the thousands of people who are Somalis who call Toronto home. We're sending a team to Kenya. And I can tell you this because I know the ministry there, that what is done in northeast province of Kenya has a direct impact on what's happening down here in Dixon. My favorite story of, uh, is a friend of mine who worked with Somalis both in northeast province and in Toronto. And another friend of mine, me in fact, was, was at Frankfurt Airport and I dropped my ticket 
and, and out of it fell my, my uh, business card that said CVM. The guy picked it up. He looked at me, he said, CVM. And then he said, Bob, are you Bob? Bob Swan? I said, no, I'm Gary Nelson. I was told when I got to Toronto from Nairobi that I should look for Bob Swan, globalization. The mission field is now next door. Thousands and thousands of Somalis called Toronto home, and we're sending a short-term team to the Northeast province. You see, mission is not just about people who embed themselves and live incarnationally in a place. While it's still about that, it's also now about mission that is here and also about those people who come to visit for a time as an act of solidarity. To live among a group of people for a time, to share and to be sure just because they're North Americans, they have this desperate need to make a difference. How I'd love to get rid of that. There is mission now that's here, there, everywhere. To the teams that are going out from Tyndale, you need to realize that how you represent us as Tyndale is probably more critical than anything that you do. A matter of fact, I would go so far as to say this. What you do is secondary. And that's why I want to just quickly, because I have to watch the clock, look at 1 Timothy if you have your Bibles. Timothy is talking to, or Paul is writing to Timothy to talk to, the, uh, talk to him about not quitting the ministry, basically. Uh, he's, uh, Timothy's just about had it with the Ephesians. He's tired of them. He's tired of having to pastor them. And he's tired of some of the teachers there. And here's, here's the thing that I think is so critical. He describes the false teachers in all sorts of ways, but the one that I love the most is, they know nothing of the things they so confidently assert. Do you know what a heavy responsibility it is to be a teacher at Tyndale? To be a person of faith and a teacher at Tyndale? I think teachers at Tyndale are held to a higher standard by God than those that are at U of T. Because they need to know the things that they so, know something of the things they so confidently assert. So that's how false teachers are. I want to put this in the context of short-term mission trips. Uh, false short-term mission trips are about those who know nothing of the things they so confidently assert. They think they're going to make a difference. Maybe they're going to make less of a difference than they think but they will make more of a difference in other areas. And look at what Paul says here. The goal of this command is love. Real quickly, I have a book coming out April 1st about all of this stuff, so pick it up. <laughs> it's called Going Global. <laughs> but <clears throat> let, me just, let me just unpack this really quickly. The goal is love. Any kind of mission is rooted in the radical center of what it means to be the Chris, a Christian. The radical center is this love, this servanthood, this idea that somehow radically we are called to be not kings, but servants. People who are willing to, to put ourselves forward 
and under other people. The goal, he says, of this command is love. And then he says this, which comes from a pure heart. Like, it's like saying, which comes from focused integrity. What you say is what you do. It's rooted in something, this idea of a pure heart. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you're focused. You're focused on God. It's rooted in who God is. Then he says, it also comes from a pure heart. From, from a good conscience, I should say. In other words, it comes from clear intentions. You know why you're going to do what you're doing. And this is the clear intention I think you need in short-term missions. You are there to walk alongside people of faith who probably have more to teach you than you have to teach them who have probably struggled more about what it means to be a person of faith at much deeper levels than we have, who are now in a place in which their churches in many of these contexts are exploding with growth, and you're coming from a country where the church is in decline. You're going to be amongst people to whom radical discipleship is the only way to live. And you're living in a context in which Christian life is a consumer activity. What do I like? What do I want? Imagine having the luxury of that in other places. You're going to be amongst people who have much more to teach you than you have to teach them. I remember uh, it was a dreadful experience. Uh, the, the Kukuyu, actually Rob Patterson, was, was a part of this church for many years, the Kariobangi South Church in Nairobi. And they, uh, they, they were great when they sang their own songs, their, their kind of traditional songs. And then all of a sudden they would break into hymns from England. And it would be like all this great singing and all this moving would kind of just die as they sang this hymn. And I remember the people who worked amongst them kind of encouraging them to have allowed their indigenous music to emerge. And when that began to happen, unfortunately, a short-term team came from a very creative church in Canada. And they decided that the best thing that this church could get was an electric keyboard, <laughs> uh, which was dreadful. For one thing, they sang beautifully a cappella. For another thing, the person didn't know how to play the keyboard. So what would happen is they would break into this song of their indigenous music and it would be wonderful and alive and they'd be moving and the keyboardist would be trying to find the note. And then he would finally find the note and then he would play, but it would just drag it down. Where did that worship team get the idea from Vancouver that it would be good for the church in Nairobi to have an electric keyboard? They had much more to teach him and them about music. Last thing, it comes from a sincere faith, not faking it. It's so much easier to have faith over there. It's so much more difficult to have it here. It's so much easier to sing I Surrender All when I've raised short-term money to go overseas and to be surrendering all for two weeks, knowing that I can come home 
And it's so much more different to be a person of faith here. I hope you're changed by your experience. I was. I got involved in global discipleship because of a short-term mission experience. In 1988, I was asked to come over to Nairobi, Kenya to consult with a group of churches. I was told that I, as an urban missiologist and as an expert on ministry in the city, I would have much to offer these Christians in Nairobi. I was picked up by a missionary who, knowing that I was an urban expert, I would say that I'd never been off the continent my whole entire life, uh, decided that even though I was in jet lag, it would be a really good idea if he took me down to the Mathari slum, which is probably one of the worst slums in Africa. Uh, when I teach urban missiology, I talk about slums of hope and slums of despair. The Mathari Valley is a slum of despair. It's your last stop. And so he drags me down to this, this place, and we walk down, we descend down into this place. And I have never been so scared in my entire life. I had nothing that I could gain. I had no, I had no contact points. I'd spent all of my life trying to contextualize ministry in Canada and trying to be relevant to non-church people in Canada. And all of a sudden, I was struck by the fact that I knew nothing about this kind of poverty. I spent all my life in a downtown church working in poverty situations in Canada and the US. And now all of a sudden, here I was amongst a group of people in which I had nothing in common. And then this person takes me to his apartment. Turns out he lives in Eastleigh, which I thought was bizarre because I thought that was the slum. I found out Mathari was the slum. And I kept hearing gunshots. And I remember journaling back to Carla and saying, I am absolutely frightened. It's my first night. I can't sleep. And I want to come home. I just want to come home. Please. For four days, I just, I, I literally walked around, because this guy thought I was an expert. <laughs> you know? I was an expert. Um, it took me days to just settle myself emotionally. Um, the good thing was I was scared and I was aware of it. There's lots of people who, who go down into these kinds of situations. They don't realize they're scared and actually they overcompensate. I was just so scared I didn't have anything to say. And he would drag me to the garbage dump. And I was supposed to be enjoying this. And do you have any ideas? I'm like, no, I have no ideas. I just want to go home. Um, years later, Kenya has become like a second home to me. Uh, those places that I go down into now are familiar to me because I have faces. I have people who I've grown to love. You see, the points of contact are not what you're going to do. It's not even the place that you're going. But it's the people that you begin to love. In April of last year, when I went on my farewell tour to Kenya, as the Bishop Dembuki and I of the Africa Brotherhood Church 
uh, African Kenyan men don't cry. Um, and for some reason, Bishop Dambuki that night at a big farewell banquet they were throwing for me and Carla, he, he said something and then he started to cry. Well, I come from a long line of male criers, so <laughs> I, I just started to cry. And I remember Kenyans looking at the bishop and wondering, what's going on? It's love. It's sermonhood. It's not rocket science. And frankly, it's nothing you have to offer except yourself. Let's pray. Father, in the gift of a global world in which we are called to be disciples, make us your servants. Amen.